I'm, you know, most Sundays, if not every Sunday, while we're in the midst of worshiping, I just, I just get overwhelmed that we're here in Ovilla getting to do all of this stuff. It's amazing. I have God's presence here with us. And we're all together, and God's created such creativity and talent and wisdom in putting together his body in this church. I'm just so grateful. Uh, we're in our series called Spiritual Adulting. You know, uh, we've been talking about what it means to grow up in the faith and own our faith. In the Jewish culture, they have a ceremony for 12 and 13-year-olds. For the young men, it's called the bar mitzvah, and for the young women, the, the bat mitzvah. And that age, that recognition, that public ceremony says to these young ones, you are now at the time in your life where you own the responsibility for your faith. You are now walking into a new phase of life, a new phase of seeking God, serving God. It's a phase of new adult-like life for them. Doesn't mean at 13 they get to start driving a car and serve in the military and do all the things that older adults do, but they do assume the responsibility of now seeking God for themselves. Their faith becomes their own. The parents begin to release and they let them have the now responsibility of growing their faith. That's an important phase. It's important for it, the Jewish culture, but it's important in our culture as Christians as well. There should be times in all of our lives as believers that we move from infancy in faith, from childlikeness in faith, up into maturity in faith. You and I are born again the day we receive Christ into our life, and we start our spiritual journey as babies, as infants. We don't know how to feed ourselves. We don't know what to do. We cry a lot and we complain a lot. Hello. That's what sometimes happens. That's what almost all the time happens for us as spiritual infants. But as we grow, as we learn, as we begin to learn to feed ourselves, as we begin to accept responsibility, we move into a place of maturity and we don't cry as often. Hello? We don't complain as often. We know how to get rid of the mess in our life. We don't have to have someone else come change it for us. Hello? We grow up into a place of spiritual maturity. We get past the place where we're just reciting, God is great, God is good, let us thank him for our food. Right? I don't know why that didn't always rhyme, good and food. It should, it should have rhymed, I don't know why it did. We get past that place where we just recite prayers and we own our prayers. They come from our heart. We get past the place where worship is this spectator thing that we watch others do to a thing that's in, about us and our relationship with God and our heart is poured out. We get past having to have someone else tell us what God's word says, but we go and we see what God's word says. We hear what he says. He speaks to us. We don't have to be told everything to do because we listen to the spirit inside us who instructs us what to do. Hello? This is spiritual adulthood. This is growing up in the faith. And the Bible calls us to that. The Bible calls us to, to grow in the faith, to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to become wise in the scriptures, 
to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, to let God do what he wants to do in our life, to be conformed to the image of Christ so that we don't even think, look, and act like we used to. Behaviors change, activities change, attitudes change, everything about us changes. This should be the continuous movement for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Change, I'm maturing, I'm growing. We should not look like we used to look three years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, 25 years ago, the day you came to Jesus Christ, you ought to look different than that today. There ought to be some wisdom about your life, some passion about your life, some freedom about your life, some pursuit about your life, some greatness and glory about your life that you didn't know back then, amen? So we've used a couple of definitions in our series here. We've called adulting this idea of accepting the responsibilities necessary for becoming a mature adult. That's just a necessary part. These graduates here are about to walk in a new phase of life. They're about to do some new adulting. They're about to do some things they haven't done before. They're about to own some responsibilities they haven't before. But when it comes to spiritual adulting, we've used this definition, accepting the responsibilities necessary for spiritual growth and maturity in Christ where we begin to own for ourselves the responsibility of our faith. Now, all of our series here at Vertical have a different feel to them. Breathe had a certain feel to it. God was doing a thing in our midst, in our lives through that series. This one is a little different, spiritual maturity. And I don't know if you've sensed this. Our staff has talked about it. I sense it. There's something different happening. There's this call to maturity that sometimes is a little uncomfortable. Hello? You know, the Breathe series had this feel of comfort and reassurance, and, uh, but this one has a different feel to it. So if you're here this morning and you sense a little bit of discomfort, welcome to the room. We're all in this together because the call to maturity always calls us past where we are now past our habits that we're in now, past the ways that we're thinking now, and that kind of change sometimes is a little bit uncomfortable. So if you feel some discomfort this morning, it's okay. It's part of the maturing process. Amen? We've challenged everyone in this series through 60 days of adulting. We're three weeks into this now, so we're not in 60 days anymore. We're sometime, or somewhere less than 60 days. But what we've encouraged everyone in our church to do is during this series to seek God yourself, train yourself to read Scripture daily. I've not suggested an amount to read as far as verses or chapters or books, but I have encouraged everyone to read, ask God to speak to you, and when he speaks, stop. Then do whatever he told you when he spoke to you. Live that out that day. That's part of the process of spiritual adulthood. Now, before I get into the title for the message, I just want to say one thing. Last week, I talked about the difference between the, the word, God's written word, which in the New Testament uses the Greek word logos, and then another word that's used for word, rhema. It's a Greek word that means to receive a message that's very personal. So God will speak through his logos to give me a message that's very personal. Amen? 
And so this is how we ought to be approaching Scripture, and that's what I encourage all of us to be doing during this message. God is going to use his word, logos, and he's going to speak messages to all of our lives, every one of us. And almost every Sunday, I'll have several people come to me and say, let me tell you what God said to me today. And it'll be different from the next person who says, let me tell you what God said to me today through all this. And it'll be different from the next person who says, let me tell you what God said to me today through all of this. That is God speaking to each of us. And this is what you and I have to be in tune to, listening to, ready for, because that's what God is going to do when his word is proclaimed. Amen? So our our title today for our message in fitting and keeping with our theme today is, here's your spiritual adulting diploma. We all want to grow up into this spiritual adulthood the adult phase of faith. But to do so, the scripture says, there are some things that are necessary that you have to do. Just like these graduates had to pass some specific requirements before they could receive a diploma. The Bible says there are some things that you and I must reach and attain and accomplish if we want to move into the phase of spiritual adulthood. Now, it's all by God's grace but it requires great faith. And the book of Hebrews is where we go today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. We're going to use this as our, um, our teaching and our truth today that we're going to start with. I've got my logos, right? I've got my Bible here, and God is going to speak his word to us through his word. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the believers there past their immaturity, past their elementary faith. Uh, He even said at the end of chapter 5, he says, you know, some of you have been in the faith long enough that you should not be children anymore. You ought to be mature. In fact, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be the ones who are making an impact on the lives of others instead of being so obsessed with yourself. You ought to grow up in the faith. You ought to be the actual word for teacher is the word master. You ought to be somewhat of an expert in the word. So he writes this in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. In other words, leaving the ABCs, leaving the one, two, threes, leaving all of the basic elementary concepts of what it means to know Christ. He says, let us go on to perfection. Let's move on. Let's get past some of that. Let's don't keep singing the ABC song over and over again. We got it. Let's move on. Let's move on to, he says, perfection. We'll talk about that in just a moment. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. He says, these are foundational. These are the basics, and let's don't lay the foundation again. Can you imagine if someone told you, hey, I'm building a house. You said, "Ah, that's awesome. How far along are you? Well, you know, we just cleared the land, and we're starting the work on the foundation. 
You say, that's ah, so great. Yeah, we put the form work up. Cool, all right, well, I'll look forward to talking to you next week. Next week you go back, hey, how's the progress on the house? Oh, it's awesome. We've got the ground cleared and we've got some form work up. It's really, really good. Isn't that what you had last week? Yeah, but it, oh, hey, there's nothing like clearing some land and putting some form work up. It's really awesome. All right, cool. I'll check back with you in a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks, you go back to them. Hey, how's that house coming along? It's so great. We cleared the land and we've got some form work up for the foundation now. I'm like, what? You said that to me weeks ago. And before that, you keep saying the same thing. Yeah, but it's just really kind of cool. You think, something's wrong with you, sir. You don't keep clearing the ground and putting form work up. You've got to get past the foundation. You've got to pour the slab. You've got to make sure the plumbing was in there and the electricity and what lines and all of that. And then, then you build some walls. And then you put a roof on it. And then you fill the house. You put some windows and doors. And then you put some flooring down. Then you paint it. Then you make it stable and secure. And then you make it a, a home. You make it beautiful. And you put some landscaping outside. And, and you get it all finished. That, that's what you do for a house. You don't just stay with the foundation. Sadly, so many people who are in churches today have done little more than clear the land and put some form work up. They don't know all of the joys and delights and wisdom and power and victory that awaits them in the house because all they've done is clear the land and put some form work up. Today in this passage, we're going to look at what God says are necessary for us to move on, to get to the place where we do more than just build the foundation. Let's zero in on this. Verse 1, he said, therefore, we're going to leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. This word leaving here is a word for letting go. It's a word sometimes used in the New Testament for forsaking it is also used for forgive. Interesting use of the same word. Let go of what was in the past and move on. Have you ever met someone stuck in the bitterness about something that happened a long time ago and they replay it as though it just happened yesterday? And they haven't been able to move on in their relationships. They haven't been able to move on in their life because they cannot let it go. It's time to leave those things. And the writer of Hebrews says there's a time to leave the elementary things behind. There's some things that are most basic to the faith. God is good. Yes, he is. God has a son named Jesus. Yes, he does. Jesus came to earth to die for our sins. Yes, he did. That's good. That's nice. There's a whole lot more. A whole lot more. And he says, it's time to leave spiritual elementary school. It's time to leave just drinking milk. He goes on in verse one, the second part of it, he says, let us go on to perfection. This is the word that means maturity, completion. It doesn't so much mean you do everything perfectly as much as you grow up into maturity, the fullness of who you were meant to be. You grow up into that and you leave building the foundation and you start adding some rooms. You start building the house. 
And you can't do that if you haven't finished the foundation. So today, as we go through the rest of this passage, I want us to consider six truths that you must settle. Six things that will be essential for you and I to settle in our hearts and say, all right, I believe these. I am settled on these and I'm ready to move on. I'm ready to get on to the things that God has for me so I can experience the greatness of who he is and who he is in me. The first thing he says in the first part of this list of six things he says is moving on from repentance from dead works. Ah, Interesting phrase. Repentance is a word that means to turn, to have regret from what you had done And you move on from that. You turn away from that. You press on in a new direction. He says it's from dead works. Interesting. We all have things in our past that came from who we were. Amen? There's some things that we used to do that today we are ashamed of, right? They are dead because they came from a time of death in our life when we were spiritually dead. Some things that we're not proud of, some things we don't like to talk about in groups, some things we'd rather not have to deal with anymore, some things that we were even trying to do that we thought were good, but they turned out to be a failure. Those were dead works. And those things, the Bible says, we should repent of. We should come to Christ and say, God, I was so foolish in doing what I did. Would you forgive me for walking in my own ways? Would you forgive me for denying you? Would you forgive me for not trusting you? And when you did that, you were born again. You were saved. And when that happened, all of those dead works were washed away. They were removed You repented of them once. You were done with them. What's sad is how many Christians today continue to walk in their Christian life still carrying those dead things as though they are still alive and with them today. They're carrying their past failures from before they became a believer and their past failures from last week, last month, They carry them all around as though they are still on them, still carrying them, still thinking somehow I've got to make up for all of them. And the writer of Hebrews says, look, the gospel came as good news. The gospel came to set you free. The gospel came to say that in Christ you are forgiven and you do not have to keep carrying the guilt of your past sins. Are you with me? Let me just ask the booth. Is this a distraction, my mic? You want me to switch? No. Okay, cool. We'll just continue on. Don't let it hit my beard. That's impossible. So here we go. So let me, let me tell you, let me present it this way as a truth. Here's the first truth you've got to settle if you want to grow up in the faith. If you want to really move on past elementary faith, here is a truth that you must settle, that I am free from condemnation. Amen? 
Here's what happened. Jesus came to planet Earth. Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God. Jesus went to the cross, and there your sin and my sin was placed upon him. He became the payment for that sin. He died with that sin on him. He made the payment. He entered heaven. And was he accepted by the Father in that moment? Yes, he was. You know how I know he was? Because he came back and was resurrected. The resurrection was proof the Father accepted the payment for sin. When he came out of that grave, that meant anybody put their faith in him could be free. So look here. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you receive everything that he has. And if he entered into heaven and was not condemned and not rejected and not cut off and not punished and not held for what had happened, then you and I in him are no longer condemned, rejected, or held responsible for our past sins. Amen. If you have a voice in you that keeps telling you, oh, you know what you did back in 1985. You know what you did in 2007. You know what you did. You know that you can't ever experience God's blessing because of what you did. That is not from God. That is from the enemy. He is called the accuser of the brethren. And you tell him, buzz off, boy, because I have been made free in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who walk according to the Spirit. Amen? That's what you say, and that's how you grow up in the faith. You've got to get past carrying your guilt and your shame. You won't ever experience the riches that are ahead until you can pass this essential truth. Settle it. Settle it. And you say, it's just so hard to take in that I have been freed from the condemnation. Yes, let the freedom of that gift just wash over you. Let the freedom of that just fill you. Any voice that says, but I haven't done enough good, silence that. It's not about me being good. Jesus was good. You say, well, I'm just not strong enough to walk. It's not about you being strong. It's about how strong he was. Receive it as the gift. It comes to you. This is faith 101. This is elementary belief. You've got to pass this. Come on now. You've got to get in this truth. I am free from condemnation. This is truth one. Amen. Amen. The passage goes on. He said also, let's move on past faith toward God. Mm. Now, let me remind you, this doesn't mean we're leaving these, like never visiting them again, just like ABCs. You use them every day. You write with them. You type with them. You read with them every day. They're a part of your life. But you don't go back home every day and say, now wait, how does that go? A, B, C, D. No, wait. You don't do that every day. You know them and you move on. You move on. So he says, another one we want to move on with is faith toward God. Faith 
is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith, faith is essential. Faith that believes God is good is good. Faith that believes God exists is good. Faith that believes God is holy is good. Faith that believes God sent his son is good. Faith that believes God sent his son to take away our sins is good. But faith has an element to it that is important for you and I to grasp. Because faith doesn't just believe that God exists. Faith believes that God sent his son to die for me. Watch this. Faith also declares that when you believe, you are declared righteous. Now, this is a, this is a little bit tougher concept. Now, mind you, this is all still elementary, though. When Jesus made a way for your sins to be forgiven, he also made a way for you to become righteous. Now, I don't mean that you began a path of starting to try to live righteous enough so that you could be accepted into heaven. That's not what happened. When Jesus died and made a way for you to receive faith, the Bible says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, it's not enough that you get your sin erased. That's really not enough for you to experience the life of God. It's great. It's awesome. It's necessary. But you just getting your chalkboard erased doesn't fit you for heaven because you have to be perfectly righteous to get into heaven. You have to be righteous to be able to enter into heaven in the presence of God and hear God and speak to God. You have to be perfectly righteous. And so the Bible says that when you have faith, that you are not just having your sins forgiven, you are receiving the gift of being declared righteous. So truth number two today, elementary truth that we must know is that I am righteous by faith in Christ. You might say, well, that's awfully arrogant of you. I would say that's awfully mistaken of you because I don't have righteousness because I act righteous. I have righteousness because he gave me the gift of righteousness. We get it backwards in church sometimes. We think, oh, I need to be more righteous. I'll go to church, read my Bible, give some money, pray a prayer, do some good things, be nice to my friends, be nice to people who are not my friends, and boy, I am becoming more righteous. No, that's not the way it works. When you believed, you received the Holy Spirit into your life, and you were declared blameless, holy, and righteous. It came as a gift to you, a gift you did not deserve, a gift you could never earn. 
And God calls you righteous. Now, this, this one for me has been an elementary truth over the years that's been hard to take in. And I'm stunned that it's part of elementary truths. But faith toward God declares me righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Wow. So now, when I take in that gift and I say, God, thank you for giving me the gift of righteousness, you know what it does in me? It humbles me, and it creates an appetite in me. I all of a sudden want to do righteous things. I have an appetite for that all of a sudden. So I want to read Scripture. I want to pray. I want to worship. I want to serve. I want to change my life because of the gift I've received. If you think somehow that righteousness is some kind of heavy duty obligation thing that you've got to somehow work toward, I know what you don't have much desire for that because it doesn't create that. Only a gift creates that kind of delight in you. So elementary truth number two, you have been declared righteous by the God of all righteousness. Take that in. It's a gift. Let it wash over you. Let it sink in. It's a gift. It's not a work. It's a gift. You receive it. You don't earn it. It's a gift. You can't perform enough for it. It's an essential truth that's necessary for us to move on, move on into greater things. Amen? The passage goes on and it says, and of the doctrine of baptisms. Interesting. King James and New King James uses the word baptisms here. It's actually the word in the original language for washings. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, for something to be used in the tabernacle or temple, or even the priest or the prophets, before they could be used by God, they had to be washed. And they had to be ceremonially clean, cleansed. And if they had touched anything dead during the week, they were called unclean. And so they had to be washed and set aside a time until they had been ceremonially cleansed. Then and only then could you be used by God. You had to be washed. You had to go through a period of purging in your life. <clears throat> and the old covenant described the way that people were washed clean the way that their sins were purged. The book of Hebrews, also in chapter 10, it says that, that this was really just a shadow in the old covenant of something new that was going to come. So in Hebrews 10, verse 1, it says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. They never could make them completely perfect. For then 
they would not have, or would they not have ceased to be offered? If there was ever a sacrifice in the Old Testament that could be offered and it would be done, and everybody could walk away and say, whoo, glad to be done with that. Amen. Thank you, God. There never was. And the writer of Hebrews says, if there were, they would have been perfect. He says, for the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. They wouldn't have to keep up with their sins. But under the old covenant, you had to. You had to keep up with your sins. You had to bring the sacrifices. And every time you came to the tabernacle, here's my offering for my sins. Okay, see you next time. Keep a list, keep a list, keep a list, keep a list. Sacrifice, come back, offering. Hope that covers it. Yes, okay. Go back, keep a list, keep a list, keep a list. Bring a sacrifice, go back. And this book book of Hebrews says that, that it was impossible for those sacrifices. For if it for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could ever take away sins. But the Bible says that there came a Lamb of God who would be the fulfillment of all of those pictures of lambs. It goes on in verse 11 in that chapter, and it says, <clears throat> And every priest, he stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, he sat down at the right hand of God. When do you sit down? When you have finished your work. My dad was a working machine. When he went outside to work, he worked hard. And he wanted me to come with him to work hard. And there were times when I was young and a young teen and an older teen, I would look for ways and times to do this. Mm. He'd say, what are you doing? Get up. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right, here we go. Back to work. He wanted to make sure we kept working. The Bible says that when Jesus entered heaven, he sat down. The work was done. Verse 16, it says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Washings had to do with continually keeping up with, repenting of, and being washed from sins. But the washing of the New Testament into Christ, baptism into Christ, the picture of baptism is entering into Christ and you enter into something you have not known before. You enter into what I'm calling truth number three this morning, this powerful truth that says, I am joined to and one with Christ. This is now who I am. I was not sure before and I wasn't before, but now I have come to faith in him and I have been joined to him. He doesn't just live in me, he and I are one in me. We are together. 
1 Corinthians 6, 17 says, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. We are linked. We are united. We are put together. We're not like Velcro that can be pulled apart. We're not like two pieces of paper that can be pulled apart. We have been forever permanently melded together into one. You can't tell where I end and he begins or where he ends and I begin. You and I have been made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a truth. Now, all of these this morning, you're gonna have to take in by faith. This is, the, this is maturity. You might be saying, I just don't feel equipped for all of that. I hear you. No one called you to equippedness. You're called to believe. Amen? So you're going to have to take this truth in. I have been made one with Jesus Christ. This is important to know. Because the enemy will do all he can to make you think you are not. The enemy will say, you can't be righteous. You can't be used by God. He doesn't really love you. You can't change. You're not all that. You'll never be able to become what he says. You might as well just believe the labels that you've been given, that you're a failure, you're depressive, you're an addict, you are broken, you're incapable, and you're a sinner. Those are labels that the enemy uses. Those are labels that the world uses. The labels that the God who redeemed you uses is you are now one with me. This is a new label. You are a saint. You are forgiven. You're called blameless. You are a child of God. You have been made the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are one with him. Nothing can separate him from you or you from him. Are you struggling to take some of this stuff in? I mean, it's okay to be honest. It's church. Hello? Are you with me? Listen, the ability to understand these things is not elementary. Believing them is elementary. Understanding comes with maturity. Let me say that one more time. Because you're probably trying like I do. I'm trying to figure out how all of this can be true because I don't feel that way yet. I don't experience all of that yet. I don't understand all of this yet. Understanding doesn't come when you're an infant. Understanding comes when you settle it and say, God, I cannot imagine me being without condemnation. I cannot imagine you calling me cleansed. I cannot imagine you being one with me, but I believe it by faith. When you choose that, when you settle that, understanding will begin to happen. Understanding is a maturity concept, not an elementary concept. So own it. Own it by faith today. Let's move on. Let's move on into maturity in Christ. He also goes on in this verse and he says, and of laying on of hands. Now, what's happening here is the writer's writing to a distinctively Jewish congregation who know the history of the Jews and know their faith and their practices. And the laying on of hands was an important part of Old Testament concepts. 
The laying on of hands happened when someone was a prophet or a priest or a king. And those who were the elders in the community would go to that person and they would lay their hands, I'm going to lay my hands on you, Jeff, would lay their hands on them as a visible and tangible way of saying, God, we believe you have called this person for your service. God, we're asking you to bless this person. Could they have done that without putting their hands on them? Of course. But there's something about the experience of touch. There's something about this person receiving it from the others and knowing the elders and the respected put their hands on him. It was a way of conveying blessing to him. Blessing, anointing, power, choosing. It was a way for them to know they have been chosen, blessed, and anointed for service by God. Now, I recognize that's not a a familiar practice to us within the Christian church of the 21st century. This is written to uh, Jewish believers, but it carries an important truth. You see, Jesus was also Jewish, and Jesus was anointed as a prophet, priest, and a king. The Holy Spirit coming down out of heaven in the form of a dove at his baptism was symbolic of anointing, power, God flowing through him. And so what happens for you and I as we come to faith in Jesus Christ, one of the elementary concepts we have to take in is that we have been chosen, blessed, and anointed just like Jesus And you say, I don't feel like I should be blessed, chosen, and anointed. This has nothing to do with your feelings. This has everything to do with truth. Don't get me started on another tirade about culture today and feelings and faith. All right? Don't get caught up in that world deception today that what you feel is what's real, and if you don't feel it, it's not real. No, what we we know is true is what's real. My feelings have to get in line. Sometimes they feel right, sometimes they feel wrong, but they don't get to determine which way we go. Truth determines which way we go. And I, yeah, amen, amen. And I don't care, just because you woke up one morning feeling extra woke about your gender being something different than what you thought, it has nothing to do with your feelings. There is objective truth that God has declared. There's a man and a woman, and that's it. It's truth. Amen? Amen. And the Bible is God's word, and we believe it. I don't have to have 10 other people justify whether it really is God's word or not, explain these miracles or not. I just believe it's God's word, and it's true. Amen? That's what we walk with. So when he says, we're going to walk past the elementary truth of just the laying on of hands, we're going to move into a truth then that says, in Jesus Christ, I have God's favor. You do. The the day you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were seated with him in heavenly places. 
You were chosen for a task. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. You may not have tapped into that. You may not understand that yet, but it doesn't mean it's not yours. It just means you haven't understood it yet. And the, re- and the way you get to understand it is by accepting it as true. Now, does Jesus have favor in heaven? He does. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Does the Father tell him things? Oh, yeah. Does Jesus tell the Father things? Yeah. Does the Father hear him? Yeah. Does the Father have riches for Jesus? Yeah. Does the Father have uh, responsibilities for Jesus? Yeah. Does the Father have an inheritance for Jesus that he has reserved for him? He does. Guess what? If you are in Jesus, you have all of that. You do. You have the favor of the Father, and the Father tells you things. The Father speaks truth to you. You can talk to him and he'll hear you. He has blessings for you. He has riches for you. He has inheritance for you. He has responsibilities for you. Because it comes to you as a gift. A free grace gift. And that will wreck your shop. It will. Because it just goes contrary to everything you and I know. Here on earth, you don't get something unless you work for something. But in the kingdom of God, you come by faith and he gives you everything. So you want to grow up in the faith? Own this truth that the Father is for you. His blessings are for you. You say, well, you hadn't seen my life. I don't have to see your life. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is for you. He is with you. He's not against you. He's working on your behalf. He's conforming you to the image of Christ. Your life may be going through some trials right now. He's using all of that to conform you. He is for you. He has blessed you. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies is yours. You haven't understood it because you haven't believed it yet. Believe it. Settle it. And you'll begin to understand it. Let's move on. You know, I got into this message and I thought, this is going to be a whole series, just these two verses here. Number, or the next part says, and of resurrection of the dead. He says, this is something we need to move on from. Now, the Bible says there's coming a day of resurrection for all. Now, that means first everybody has to die. You can't have a resurrection unless there's death. But the Bible makes it clear that there is a resurrection for the just and the unjust. Acts 24, if you need a reference. That means everybody will be raised from their grave. Every person. Doesn't matter if you died at sea and 15 fish ate you and took off in 20 different directions. You will be resurrected. It doesn't mean if you burned that you can't be. No, you will be resurrected. God knows how to find every part, put them back together and resurrect you. He does. And if you're a believer or if you're not a believer, you will be resurrected. The unjust will be resurrected to judgment because they rejected Jesus as the payment for their sins. They will face themselves paying for their sins. 
an eternity separated from God. But the just, the believer, we are not resurrected to a judgment. We're not resurrected to see if we made it or not, if we've done more good than bad, if we went to church enough, if we gave enough. No, you and I are resurrected to a place where to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, where you and I are resurrected into his presence, where you and I can know with confidence to die here is to be present there with no meeting St. Peter at the gate for some trick question about why should I let you into my heaven. I know that's often used in trying to evangelize people. But that is not what's going to happen. There's nothing in scripture that records that ever happening. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will go immediately into the presence of Christ. You and your future are secure in him. Truth number five, we must settle. I am eternally secure in Christ. You're secure. You're set. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can go on past all of the uncertainty you can go on past all of the reminders of your past. You can go on past all of the questions and say, I know with certainty that what Jesus said is true. He said, I give them eternal life, give, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Never. I don't care who it is. I don't care what it is. They cannot snatch you out of the hand of God. Now, almost every believer at some point wrestles with this truth. There are some who are blessed to not, but the vast majority do. I remember as a college student, I didn't, I didn't come to faith till I, was, till I graduated from high school. And so during my college years, it was those early years of faith, and I'm trying to figure all this stuff out. When I was an infant in the faith, I was learning. And I remember wrestling with this truth because I thought my standing with God was based on my latest sin meter. Hello? I thought if I had committed too many sins, it had kicked me off the scale. And I knew of whole denominational groups that taught that, that you could actually lose your salvation. And those that I've met from that group live in a constant turmoil, uneasy, unsettled, never be able to move on to greater depths because they're always wondering, have I done enough? Am I saved? Maybe I should get saved again just to make sure I'm really saved. And then after that, get saved again, 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 because I'm not sure if I really, 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 really was. And they just live this life of going back and revisiting the foundation. So I had to make this card that I kept in my room that had scripture on it and a date. On this day, I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I can't tell you how many times I went back to that card and nailed it down 
and nailed it down and claimed by faith it was true. There came a day I could finally put the card away because I had settled the matter. If you want to move on in your faith, you have to get to the place where you know there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. If you have been born again, you've begun a new life, and that new life cannot be taken away. You are not who you were before. Amen? Settle it. Our last one is the last part of this verse, and it says, and of eternal judgment. It's interesting. Did I read the wrong verse earlier? No, I got that. Uh, Of eternal judgment. There's coming a day of judgment. As I said, it's for the just and the unjust. Those who have not believed will sadly live in torment because they've not found peace with God. They've not found grace. And they, in their arrogance, will defiantly shake their fist at God. And they will face a judgment. But those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says a very different thing happens for us when we go to heaven. There's not a day of having to pay for your sins because that was done already. Instead, in 1 Corinthians, it describes that there's a different experience for us. There's a day of testing or approving in which God takes everything you and I have said and done and he values it. And the way he does that is by fire, the Bible says. And there'll be some things that'll be burned up. Things that you and I spent time and money and interest and energy on and they'll just be, they'll come to nothing. There'll be other things that you and I poured ourselves into, prayed for, believed God for, walked in obedience to God with. And those things, they will last. They'll come through the fire. And even those who had their works burned up, the Bible makes it clear that they will still enter eternity saved through the fire. What an incredible privilege and blessing that God would allow us sinners saved by grace to enter into heaven and then experience rewards that he would give to us treasure, crowns, favor. Can you imagine Jesus handing to you a crown? How humbling, how overwhelming. What a powerful picture of grace. Now, the Bible makes it clear that when those crowns are handed out, that it will pale in comparison to what he's done for us, and we'll immediately say, "Mm mm-mm, and we'll lay them at his feet because of the greatness of who he is and what he has done. 
And this becomes one of those matters worth settling. That I don't live in fear of a day that I will see Jesus. I don't live in dread of that. I don't live in uncertainty of that moment. I may have questions about it, which I do. But what I know with certainty is that when I see him, I will see him face to face. I will be known and I will know. And in that moment, he will invite me into his glorious presence. And everything that I have believed by faith will become sight. Everything that I've longed for and looked for will be there in my presence. And he will be brighter than it all. And he will look at his children who have believed him and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your reward. This is a matter worth settling. Let's move on. Those are powerful truths, but let us move on. There's even greater truths ahead. And they come to those who will settle these truths as elementary. Would you bow your heads with me? What is it you need to settle today? What is it in your heart and mind that you need to come to some finality with? Is it that you are free from all condemnation? Thank him for that. Is it that you have been declared righteous by faith? Thank him for that. Is it that you have been joined to him and are one with him? That you have God's favor. That you are eternally secure in him. Or that you have reward waiting for you in heaven. Would you thank him for those this morning? Settle that matter in your heart. Say, God, I'm grateful. This is beyond more than what I could have ever imagined. And this is your grace. And I'm ready to go on to maturity. Father, I thank you for your word, for your work in us that is greater than what any ear has ever heard and eye has ever seen. Today we receive these truths by faith in you, not by our works, not by our, our trying to earn it, but simply as a gift. We receive those today and know that as we receive it, you are changing us. You're transforming us. You're maturing us. And for that, we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.